Hi, this is Feed, Play, Love, the parenting podcast that you can fit in your pocket. Short, informative and interesting interviews about everything from toilet training to how emotion coaching works. I'm your host, Siobhan Hunt. The next interview is one of the diamonds from our archive. Enjoy. If you're listening to this show... You're a parent who cares about how you're raising your children. You're probably, like me, trying your best to raise them well, but constantly worried you've done something wrong. They're having tantrums, fighting with their siblings, and possibly watching too much TV. And you're thinking the whole time, I'm messing this up. Dr. Dan Siegel is a child psychiatrist. He has co-authored a new book with Tina Payne Bryson. It's called The Power of Showing Up, and in it he explains the single most important thing for parents to raise their children well. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. I love the idea that there may be one thing that we have to concentrate on with raising kids. Um, there's a lot of books out there about parenting, why is this particular idea the one that cuts through all the research for you? Yes. Well, what's so exciting about it is, you know, part of what I do is work in the academic world of synthesizing different fields of research. And in just completing reviews of thousands of studies of parent-child relationships and things related to the brain and development, it was so exciting to, at the same time, be writing this book with my colleague, Tina Payne Bryson, called The Power of Showing Up, because if you synthesize all that science and say, for a parent, what does that science tell us across all cultures is the essential aspect of what we bring to our children as we raise them? And the answer is showing up. And what that means is that you are there to see the inner life of your child, to soothe them when they're distressed, to keep them safe, meaning you protect them from harm, but also if you are the source of terror, you quickly repair that disconnection and that they develop security from these ways you can be showing up for them in, in their fundamental early years of life. And when they do that and they have that experience with you, knowing there's no such thing as perfect parenting, making repairs when there are ruptures, you can actually build a parenting approach based on the science of child development. So you mentioned a few things there, if we could unpack them a little bit. When you talk about uh, making sure your child is seen, what does that look like in a practical sense? If you go on parenting forums or listen to anything about parenting, you'll hear um, discussions about parents who are in the playground on their phone and then parents will defend that, saying it's the only time I've had five minutes to myself, I can't watch them all the time. What does being seen mean in a practical sense, day to day? Well, the word seen means that you use something that you can call mind sight, which is basically if the mind includes your emotions, your thoughts, your intentions, your hopes, your dreams, how you perceive things, the things that mean things to you. Those are the inner nature of the mind. So when we use the word seen, what we mean is, you're actually taking note, trying to notice what's going on beneath your child's behavior. So let's use a very practical example. Let's say a child is going down the street in her tricycle and she hits a stone and falls over and hits her elbow on the ground and now she's lying on the ground crying. 
Now, there are a number of things you can do. One thing you could do is ignore her completely. And let's say she's two, um, you know, two and a half. And she's now gets up and realizes she can do this on her own. She doesn't need you to do anything. Another thing you could do is get down to her level and start crying yourself as she's crying because <laughs> you're so identifying with her and just get overwhelmed. Oh, my God, this is so terrible. It's so terrible. You know, where there's no differentiation between your experience and hers. A third option is you get down at her level, you give her space around her, you go, wow, that was, that was really um, a surprise. I, I, I wonder if you're feeling scared. Let me hold you. Oh, how's your elbow? And now you're not hovering. You're not over-identifying. But you're using what researchers call mental state language. What does that mean? It means you're saying, I wonder if you felt scared or that was a surprise to hit that rock. Those states of surprise or fear or sadness, those are things you can put names to. And the research is really clear. If you as a parent notice that is attuned, focus attention on the inner experience of the child, so you don't just say to them, get up, or even get up. No, you say, yes, you'll be getting up, and you identify their internal state they will have a very different development of emotional intelligence. They can name emotions, understand what they do in their lives. Social intelligence, they can articulate the inner world that's going on inside of them and understand it in others for empathy. And you're going to teach them this capacity that they can be soothed when they're seen like that, the second S. And in all these ways, you know, when the internal world is brought out for sharing in these things you can call reflective conversations, children flourish. And a lot of parents feel so busy or they don't feel equipped on how to do that. So what Tina and I do is we teach the skills of seeing children in this way. Safety is a really interesting one for me. You mentioned there that it's not just about protecting kids. It's also about not being a source of terror. So I would say most people, when they hear that, go, well, of course I'm not a source of terror. I, am, I, I make sure they cross the road properly. I tuck them in to bed at night. Um, but a source of terror doesn't have to mean you're um, completely abusive, does it? Well, that's exactly right. And this is, the, this is the amazing thing about the safety, one of the S's. You know, there's seen, there's soothed. So when you're distressed, you are helped by another to calm down teaching you that you can rely on others and then ultimately learn also to rely on yourself. Now, the safety one is really very important because, of course, everyone wants to protect their child. That's fine. That's understandable. They're crossing the street. You keep them safe from the cars. The one that is often not identified, and yet in the field I'm trained in attachment research, it becomes crucial, is when the parent, the attachment figure, is the source of terror. What we believe is happening is two things happen simultaneously. They happen at the same time. One is when you're feeling terrified because you're a mammal, as humans, what you do is you say, well, I'm terrified. I'm going to be protected by my attachment figure, so let me go toward her or to him to protect me. Totally understandable. It's mammalian response of a young child, in the case of people, to seek connection to the attachment figure, fine, when they're terrified, fine. Now, there's another network in the brain, 
a little bit deeper in its structure and older that basically says, if I'm being terrified by something or someone, I should get away from the source of terror to protect myself. So in the same child, in the same brain, but a different network, when the attachment figure is the source of terror, understandably this deeper structure of survival says, I'm terrified of that person. I got to get away from that person. So when that person who's terrifying me is also my attachment figure, it creates a biological paradox. One part of the brain says go toward the attachment figure, the mammalian attachment part. The other part, the survival-based part, says get away from the source of terror. How can you have one body go both toward and away from the same individual, your parent? It's not possible. So the brain cannot come up with a solution that is organized. The disorganized response is to fragment the mind. This is called dissociation. And if we take a deep breath about it, any of us who've had that experience know, and the research is very clear, it's the most disruptive form of attachment. When you, um, you preface your book, indeed most of your books, by saying that there's no such thing as perfect parenting, which is very encouraging. And I must admit, when I saw the title of this book, it did scare me a bit because I thought showing up, oh no, like I work, I have a partner, I have family and friends, I have a life. How can I show up all the time? Like it's, it's just not possible. I'm going to fail at this too. But you're not about this being a, a perfect situation, are you? Not at all. That's exactly right. And I'm glad you're pointing that out because we do make that point. There is no such thing as perfect parenting. And of course, the the feeling you have when you're an author in this area, you know, also a clinician and a scientist and a parent, is to realize, you know, relationships are what Ed Tronic beautifully calls, they're messy. Stuff always happens. Things get in the way of how you would like them to be or maybe ideally how they could be. And so when you lay out a parenting book, it always makes me feel like very protective of parents because being a parent myself, knowing there's no such thing as perfect parenting, how can a book lay out something like the power of showing up? Well, the reason is because if you have a strategy of parenting that is, let me show up so my child is seen, where I see the mind beneath the behavior soothed, so I stay present for them when they're distressed, safe, so that identify ways that protect them. And also if I've done something like yelling at someone on the phone or yelling at a spouse or, you know, for some parents it's getting drunk or for some parents it's actually abusing children. There's lots of ways, uh, different degrees of intensity that children can feel terrified of the attachment figure. Some are reportable cases of abuse, but actually the majority are not abuse cases, they're just, we do things that are terrifying to our kids. Even just screaming and yelling because we have a really frustrating day, that can be terrifying to a kid. Coming home intoxicated can be terrifying for them. So when we look at it that way, then you say, okay, well, if I've been doing that, does that make me a bad parent? No. It does mean it might not be your fault, but it is your responsibility to say these terrifying moments can be repaired, they need to be repaired, and you can take a deep breath, go back to your child, 
get down at their level or below that level physically, and then talk to them about how what just happened five minutes ago, an hour ago, whenever it happened, was really not something you wanted to do, but it happened. And you are wondering, was that scary for them? And you want to hear what the feelings were like when you were yelling at the top of your lungs because you're so frustrated with what your parents said or what happened at work or whatever it is. And you do not blame the child. You don't say, you made me do that because you didn't clean up your room or whatever. No, you want to be open to making a reconnection because repair, repair, repair. If I said that the rest of our time together, it wouldn't be enough. You really want to give yourself kindness and care to know that repair is not only necessary, but it means you're human. And the way to think about it is that these ruptures and repairs are actually the source of resilience. So I'm not saying try to intentionally make a big rupture and then repair it. No, <laughs> it'll happen anyway. And don't, you know, don't do that on purpose. But the repair is with intention. And what it teaches your child is, gosh, things can be really, really hard and then they work out. And that's where resilience comes from, knowing that it's possible to come back into connection after the connection has been ruptured. And then you can do your own inner work, and we teach how to do that in The Power of Showing Up and other books I've written, like you know, Parenting from the Inside Out, where you, you learn to say, what happened to me as a child? How can I really make a more coherent inner life so I bring the best way of I can show up for my kid, knowing there's no such thing as perfect parenting. We're all in this human journey together. But having these science-based ideas of how to show up can actually make it more likely that you can do that, make repairs when the ruptures are happening, and that's the way your child will develop the fourth S, which is a secure mental model, a secure schema, a, a secure overall stance toward one's inner life and towards relationships. That's a very optimistic note to end on, so I think we'll finish there. Dan, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's a pleasure. Good day to you, and it's been great to chat. Thank you. Thank you. That's Dr. Dan Siegel. He's a child psychiatrist and the co-author of The Power of Showing Up, and we'll pop links to that in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.